This episode of Mossback is presented by the Crosscut Festival. I mean, really thousands and thousands of years of domestication like we have, we have as humans like this actually very, very strong uh, emotional relationship with our an- our dogs in particular, our animals, but our dogs in particular. Um, you know, the story of early domestication of dogs and this and this. But the, but the, the fact is, it's the first animal that we domesticated um, out of any animal that we now have domesticated. I mean, we created the dog. everybody, welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knut Berger. And today we're talking about dogs, famous dogs that touch the Pacific Northwest. So that is the topic of the video, which by the way, you really should watch. If you haven't already seen it, we suggest you stop right now, go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and check it out. Every region has its dog heroes and canine companions. The Pacific Northwest is no exception. We've had dogs that have captured the imagination, explored the continent, rounded the world, even native dogs used for making blankets. Apparently, apparently, Seattle's well-documented canine obsession goes way back. As of 2021, I recently looked this up, as of 2021, we still have significantly more dogs than children. In fact, about 50,000 more dogs than children, (laughs) which (laughs) feels about right in my neighborhood, I got to (laughs) say. Do you think this has always been the case in Seattle in particular? Or is it just in the recent decades that we just... Oh, I think something changed. And I I can't tell you when it changed. When I was growing up, uh, so we're talking about the 50s, 60s. You know, there were people had dogs. They they had instituted a leash law, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and nobody really paid attention to it. Mm -hmm. And nobody picked up dog poop. Hmm. I mean, dog poop. You mm-hmm. stepped in it, you know, mm-hmm. it was it was a problem. Nobody thought about the environmental effects mm-hmm. of either owning a dog or owning a cat, for that matter, let alone, you know, what you what you do with the poop. So I don't think I don't think Seattle was particularly a dog town. Um, I think it is more generational, maybe more mm-hmm. something that's happened in in recent years. One thing that made having dogs in Seattle easier um, was most people were living in single-family housing and had a backyard. Mm-hmm. You know, right. there weren't dog runs or dog parks. I mean, that's what parks were for, right? Mm-hmm. You took your dog to the park. or uh, But you also had a backyard you, your dog could run around in or or whatever. Yeah. Um, and do- owning a dog now is more formalized. I mean, there's the breeding, the DNA tests, the applications, yeah. and that kind of thing. None of that existed um, I mean, the breeding stuff, obviously, but no one, I, you know, growing up, I, there were very few people who had like a, a particular breed of dog. I guess you don't really go, go there at all in the Mossbacks Northwest episode about dogs. What you're really looking at is just sort of heroic dogs or famous dogs, dogs that kind of, you know, influenced or touched the region in some way. And, and, and sometimes, you know, sort of surprising stories. And you kind of start out with a dog that Coseo's people lived with and, and actually used for their fur, which is, I had never heard of that ever before, in fact, I the guess. The Macaw and Coast Salish peoples kept two distinct types of dogs in their communities. 
One was the so-called village dog with short brown hair and resembling a coyote. The other was a smaller, long-haired pooch known as the wool or woolly dog, bred for its beautiful, thick, white hair. Yeah, it was, it was uh, common among uh, some of the Coast Salish people and as well as some of the Northern First Nations people in Canada. I, I didn't know about it either until, well, some years ago, somebody mentioned to me that there was a particular breed of uh, Salish dog that had died out. Mm-hmm. And I was really curious about that, like, well, what kind of breed was it? And, you know, mm-hmm. and um, so I began doing some reading about it. And I think partly because uh, dogs are so much in people's lives right now, I thought oh, it might be interesting to look at the history of that dog and maybe some other dogs and just sort of see what kinds of stories are out there. So I really walked into the episode with kind of an open mind as far as, well, what's out there? But I, I knew I wanted to, to you know, at least begin with the earliest example that I had come across, which was which was the, the so-called woolly dog, which was a very small dog about the size of a Pomeranian. Was That was, I think, what George Vancouver said. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very surprised. The early explorers that came here were sort of surprised to see there were basically two kinds of dogs that they um, saw and that were common in uh, villages and whatnot. And there was a so-called village dog, which was a little kind of coyote-like. And mm-hmm. and then there was the this woolly dog that was treated specially. They were, the breeds were kept apart. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out that uh, the woolly dog had been around for thousands of years. It wasn't a newcomer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was basically carefully groomed because it had this very long, white, silky fur coat. Mm-hmm. And um, so a lot of the indigenous people in the area um, made blankets. And uh, if they could, they would get uh, mountain goat wool and and make these, you know, gorgeous um, blankets, many of which were kind of high status items. And but they but they actually used the woolly dogs like sheep in the sense that they would shear them on an annual basis. And um, and then weave um, weave from the wool. Yeah, I don't know. It's it uh, the pictures of the woolly dog. I mean, I guess it is a little surprising to me that they're so small. <laughs> I guess like um, because if they're from um, thousands of years ago, I guess dog domestication has kind of a longer history. But but I always think of you know dogs from thousands of years ago as being closer. Uh, to wolves, like and how they would look or something, but the pictures, the f- the few pictures that you kind of put into the episode of of this dog, and then what George Vancouver said about this dog is that it, I mean Pomeranian size is like little lap dogs. You know, they were a little bigger. They were like Pomeranians, a little bit bigger. A little bigger, okay. And uh, and of course the photographs that exist are very few because they the breed disappeared not long after contact. Yeah, so, in, I mean, in the episode, we kind of, we meet a couple traveler dogs. <laughs> like, I mean, the, the Lewis and Clark expedition, um, their dog, or I guess it was Lewis's dog. A dog hero that arrived with the explorers was Seaman, a Newfoundland who accompanied the Lewis and Clark expedition from Missouri to the mouth of the Columbia River and back 
in the early 1800s. And then there's another world-traveling dog, Oni. <laughs> another big traveler was Oni, the Postal Service mascot. Oni was an adorable terrier mutt from Albany, New York, who was adopted by railway postal workers in 1888. Um, so, so I guess those dogs sort of share this kind of, they, they made a, an impact. They did not live their entire lives in this region, but they, they kind of like <laughs> touched this region in some way. Yeah, it, the Lewis and Clark dog is really interesting because, uh, to me, because, of course, Lewis and Clark, that's one of the sort of seminal events of, of settlement and colonization. Um, and the fact that a dog came all the way out to the Pacific and made it all the way back. It was the only animal member of the expedition that did that. <laughs> and also one of these strange facts that uh, is that uh, when food was scarce or uh, that some of the expedition members would eat dog. Right. So they would they would acquire dogs or, you know, get them on the way and then they would eat them if they if they couldn't get game of some mm -hmm. kind. Some of the members of the expedition actually preferred eating dog hmm. to um to say salmon hmm. and other things. So Whoa. um yeah, I know. This was a very strange <laughs> thing. The only one on the expedition apparently who refused to eat dogs, they ate over two hundred dogs on the trip, was Clark. Hmm. Uh, William Clark. And the dog had adventures, you know, got bitten by a beaver mm -hmm. at one point. And, and, but if you've ever traveled in the, in the wilderness with a dog, and a lot of people take dogs hiking, I went for a, uh, a, a horseback expedition in the mountains of Spain hmm. many years ago. And the woman who led the expedition had a dog. Mm -hmm. And this dog must have traveled five times the distance that we traveled oh, on yeah. foot and on horseback. Right. <laughs> I mean, I was just like, we would be dead at the end of the day, you know, and this dog was still running around and going back and forth. And I mean, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm just trying to imagine what this, you know, in Seaman going on this trip with Lewis and Clark, running off and getting attacked by a beaver and they had to stitch him up and... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, getting into all kinds of uh, troubles, uh, you know, it just I, I was just stunned by the stamina this mm -hmm. <laughs> dog must have had. Exactly. And there, there are a bunch of statues of seamen that, you know, with, where they have statues of Lewis and Clark at various parts on the trail. Mm -hmm. um, there often will be a, a dog there, too. So if he were anything like my dog, he definitely would uh, do five times the distance that Lewis and Clark. <laughs> There's probably a mathematical formula to figure out like how much distance they actually do cover, but it's it's awe-inspiring. Oh yeah. Um, and then you mentioned the other dog, uh, which Oni. Yeah. And so I first heard about Oni when I was um, visiting Washington D.C. many many years ago, and I went to the National Postal Museum, hmm. and there was this stuffed dog <laughs> in a case, and he was wearing like a suit of chain mail that was made of all these metal tags, hmm. and Oni was a little mutt that um, was adopted by um, the men who uh, worked on mail trains. Hmm. So there's always like, you know, the mail car. And there, there were postal clerks that manned these cars as they delivered the mail from city to city. Well, Oni would go from train to train, and every time he would go on a journey, 
you know, he would get a little tag saying he'd been to this particular place. He was beloved by all the the, the railroad mail service people. <laughs> and in that era, that was the era when people around the world in 80 days, you know, oh, yeah. the the whole kind of uh, let's see if we if you can go around the world. And there were there was one. Well, more than one. But there was one guy who, um, you know, launched his trip from Tacoma around the world, George Francis Train. He was actually the inspiration for Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. Hmm. And he had, uh, but he was out to beat that record. Hmm. And somebody got the idea of sending Oni, the mail dog, the mail service dog, um, around the world. And they chose Tacoma as the place to start his trip. And so with much ballyhoo and publicity and newspapers loved it, you know, they put little Oni onto a, a ship that went off to Yokohama. There was no human that went with him the whole way. They just passed him off in different countries. And so, you know, he went to Hong Kong, he went to China, he went to, you know, all these different places. And eventually went, you know, ended up in London and then took a steamer to New York and then was put on a train and returned to Tacoma eventually. And uh, when he returned, he, you know, he went back to his mail car hopping, <laughs> hopping days. He ended up uh, chained up in a basement in a, oh. in a post office, um, if I'm thinking right, I think it was in Cleveland or someplace like that. And there's kind of difference of what happened, but Either he kind of went crazy or there was some kind of cruel postman, whatever, but he was killed. Oh. Um, but they're different versions of that story. Some, mm. some are like he was treated cruelly and then they killed him. And mm. anyway, it was a very sad thing. And so they decided to stuff him and put him on display. And so Oni then traveled around as a, a, a taxidermied uh <laughs> And that was what I saw in the National Postal Museum. But the other local angle on that was that uh, Oni was exhibited at the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition in 1909 here in Seattle. Ah. And so the Postal Service had a, in the gov U.S. government building, the Postal Service had a big exhibit. And among the things they exhibited was Oni. So, you know, he went around the world and then he... He did some other stuff, and then he came back to Seattle, mm -hmm. and now he's on display in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. Support for the Mossback Podcast comes from the Crosscut Festival, happening online and in Seattle May 4th through the 7th. Join us in celebrating bold ideas for a changing world at our biggest event of the year, featuring fireside conversations, panels, live podcast recordings, workshops, and special events that explore forward thinking in politics, social justice, the environment, history, innovation, and more. Spend your week with the community of the curious at the Crosscut Festival this spring. More information at crosscut.com festival.
you know, I assume there must be other stories. You know, it's kind of like we love dogs. We have such a long history with dogs. We love dogs specifically in this place. And there are some of these sort of heroic stories that you pulled out for the video. But I was wondering if you ever came across any any other famous dogs, any other heroic dogs from the region? Well, <laughs> this is a dog that isn't from the region but has a connection to the region. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and it's a dog that my father told me about. Ah. And my father had this little game that he would play where he would try to convince us of the truth of something that was either true and sounded ridiculous or sounded like it could be true. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then our job was to guess. Yeah. Or to figure it out. See Two if he was lying or whatever. Yeah. 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 So impishly at dinner one night, he he started talking about Balto the Wonder Dog. <laughs> and this just sounded exactly like something my dad would make up. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But lo and behold, it turned out Balto the Wonder Dog was an actual dog. <laughs> and that um, and my father had uh, been, you know, had had lived at the time in the 1920s. So my dad would have been, I don't know, 10 years old um, at the time that Balto became world famous, certainly Everyone in the United States in the 1920s heard of Balto the Wonder Dog. Huh. And he was actually called, I mean, his name was Balto, but if you if you go to newspapers.com and put in Balto the Wonder Dog, you'll see that he was often simply referred to that way. So why was Balto famous and what was his connection here? Well, in 1925, there was a diphtheria epidemic in Nome, Alaska. Hmm. Seattle had a lot of contact with Nome. This is before commercial flights and whatnot. There was legacy of the gold rush, which Nome was a big gold rush town. And ships would, you know, steamer passenger vessels would go back and forth to Nome. So people were always coming from or to Nome. And Nome is in, you know, upper far west Alaska, the Seward Peninsula. It's way the heck up there and out there. It's very close to the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. Well, they had an outbreak of diphtheria, and they did not have diphtheria antitoxin. They did mm-hmm. not have a serum to protect the, the children who were particularly susceptible to diphtheria. So children started dying. Mm-hmm. Well, it was winter. It was the middle of winter. So you couldn't take a boat into Nome because the ice pack. Yeah. You couldn't fly into Nome because there were no planes in Alaska and there were and other planes it couldn't fly that far in winter. Mm-hmm. There were no rails, roads or roads at all. They had two problems. They had to recru- they had to get as much antitoxin as they could from cities in the West Coast, Seattle, California and others. They, you know, they had to find diphtheria serum in other parts of Alaska. Then they had to get it, and they decided the only way they could get it in the middle of winter was dog sleds. Hmm. And so we all know about, you know, the Iditarod. Well, part of the Iditarod Trail was used as the means of getting some of this uh, antitoxin to uh, to Nome. Wow. And but the, the journey was epic. It was almost 700 miles wow. to get this antitoxin. It was an incredibly cold winter 
in Alaska, in Alaska, it was cold. I mean, it was <laughs> like 50 degrees below <sighs> without wind chill. But oh. there was also hurricane force winds. So it was it was terrible conditions, blizzards and whatnot. And so they had a relay crew of mushers. And this included the white mushers and their dog teams, but also the indigenous people contributing, you know, and everybody did a certain amount of travel. And the dog team that ran the last 50, 60 miles in terrible conditions and arrived in Nome with the life-saving toxin was a sled driven by the lead dog was a black husky who was apparently considered by his owner a real mediocre dog. Oh. And uh, its name was Balto. Huh. The man who, uh, Gunnar Kaysen was his name, who was the musher. He and Balto, because the press, you know, the, they in those days they had... Um, they could send radio telegrams and whatnot. You've got radio is now available to spread the word when a news event happens in Nome. Yeah. They became instantly famous. Uh-huh. These were the guys. And so they, brought, they were the end of the they line. They were the ones yeah. that, that saved the children of Nome. And this included, you know, the children, the white children of Nome, but they had to get antitoxin to these various villages uh, because uh, th- there was, you know, an outbreak had ex- extended beyond the small community mm-hmm. to the larger community. And uh, so they became instantly famous. They then went on a sort of a tour. So they, when, when they could, they got on a boat, came to Seattle, heroes welcome. And this is, I'm sure, where my father heard of Balto the Wonder Dog because he was in all the papers, big photographs. <laughs> and uh, they decided to make a movie, so they had Balto recreate. They ba- went back up to Alaska in the summer with Gunnar Kassen and recreated the run, and and it became a silent movie that was shown in theaters along with you know mainstream movies. And Balto was toured around the country. They built a statue of Balto in Central Park in New York. You can go to Central Park. Huh. And there is a statue of Balto. It doesn't say Balto. It says it's for all the sled dogs, but the figure is is modeled on Balto, the wonder wow. dog. So Central Park. That's interesting. Central so Park. It's like and such it, a sensation across the whole continent that uh, <laughs> that even in New York, they were like, we were, we'll build a statue. Yep. <laughs> it turns out that there is a belief, and I think it's pretty well documented, that the real hero of the dog uh, team was a different dog mm. on on the run who, who of the some 700 miles that had to be covered, this dog was considered like the apex of sled dogs. It was owned by um, uh, Leonhard Sapala, who was the guy who also owned Balto, even though he wasn't driving Balto's sled. And he was uh, he was a premier uh, musher and uh, breeder of of dogs. They they covered half the distance, so that dog was named Togo. Togo had an epic trip and did most of the work. Yeah, if you're looking in terms as a share of one dog, Mm -hmm. Balto just got like the last fifty miles and the glory. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it turned out that the guy who was driving that sled was supposed to have stopped at a at a cabin and been relieved by a different driver, but he kept on going so he could be first. <laughs> so what's interesting is that one of the big Hollywood companies made a Balto movie, mm. uh, animated. Mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon is the voice of Balto. Oh, really? So for those people who like the Kevin Bacon thing, this is, what, three degrees or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> or six degrees, is it? Six anyway. degrees, whatever it is. A few degrees. Balto. <laughs> Balto is very close to Kevin Bacon via animation, right? Wow, yeah. More recently, there was a, a movie made about Togo, and it's actually a live-action drama okay. starring William Defoe. Oh, wow. And it's the story of Togo, which attempts to kind of put Togo in, in his sort of rightful position. Uh-huh. So there's, in Alaska, it's Togo the Wonder Dog. Oh. I mean, they know about Balto, but Togo, the wonder dog, is the dog that's really celebrated. Huh. And then also controversially left out of the sort of broader narrative is the fact that many of the mushers were indigenous people. Mm. And and the people who were celebrated are the Scandinavian, mm. you know, sled sled drivers. And, of course, this was part of the media bias mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, so there's kind of a contribution here that has been overlooked. There is also, <laughs> just since we're digging into the depths of all the snow. Yep. <laughs> Let's keep going. There was a dog on Balto's team. There's a question as to whether Balto was actually leading the team. Oh, and he was, you know, he was very striking. He was kind of all black, you know. And even though he's considered this mediocre dog, people have kind of dissed him like he couldn't possibly. But he had a, he may have had uh, been harnessed alongside another dog named Fox. Hmm. So some people say, well, it should be Fox and Balto. Other people are like, forget those guys. It's Togo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so that's where we are, is the story of Balto the Wonder Dog turns out to be, well, maybe he wasn't so wonderful. <laughs> maybe it wasn't such a wonder. Maybe it's Togo the Wonder Dog, or maybe maybe we'll never know who the real, <laughs> not that it matters. <laughs> and then it turns out that Balto was also stuffed. Oh, wow. And he is on display in the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. Wow. I think he died in Cleveland. I think okay. Balto ended up in a zoo, maybe the Cleveland Zoo or something. And then when he died, they put him in the museum. So, I mean, you can go to the Cleveland Museum today and see Balto standing in a glass box. Wow. So I don't know what it is about stuffing, whether it's Oni or I think Togo was also stuffed. but Oh, we don't know where Togo is. There's uh, I, I think he's in Alaska. Oh, okay. I mm-hmm. think. Huh. Anyway, there's this this way of kind of of trying to remember these animals mm-hmm. in a you know in a kind of memorial way you know. And you think about like who gets sort of stuffed and put in a glass case. It's usually like dictators. Yeah. Right. right? <laughs> it's like Stalin or right or you know Mao. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, but. <laughs> but for us, it's it's like heroic dogs. <laughs> Thanks.
Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Seth Halloran, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. Cover art by Greg Cohen. And many thanks to engineer Resty Bacall for building out an amazing COVID-friendly audio studio. If you'd like to check out more videos from the five seasons of Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. And if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to KCTS9's on-demand programming and a subscription to the Mossback Den newsletter, where Knut shares even more Pacific Northwest history. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard, and we'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>